0: Hello, gentlemen. So we're here today at Parallax to celebrate O.G. Rowe's course, uh, which is coming up in November uh, and which is going to be um, smashing. Do you, want, do you want to start by, by telling us about this course? Yeah, I understand it has something to do with birds floating in the air.
1: Yeah, it's a bird watching class. We're gonna get through the expertise of how to watch it—cardinals and bluebirds and different things. So it's all gonna work out. So, but anyway, it's wonderful to be here, Cadell Andrew. Always a pleasure to speak. Um, I think it's really important that we can think of the great thinker Ivan Illich, who I am just always amazed by, um, on this distinction that's kind of central to the class between planning and being prepared, um, and increasingly in. It's increasingly important, I think, to be prepared for the unexpected than to plan to make sure that the unexpected never occurs. Um, Because you're ultimately going to be very fragile If you're always planning, because you can't plan for everything, but if you're prepared, like we talked uh, before, Andrew, on the hip-hop cypher, you don't know what's going to happen in the cypher, but when you step into it, if you've done the work, if you've done the thinking, you're prepared for whatever can occur, and then you can make some magic occur. That is the hip-hop. That is the unexpected. That is what can go forth. This is a very good model by which to live life. Uh, to live life in a manner where you're prepared for whatever life throws at you, it would change how you do education, it would change how you do relationships, it would change how you do work, it would have radical ramifications in all of these different areas. And I think it would be very positive and would help make us more human instead of disabled, as Ivan Illich will talk about. The um the title of the course is based on Matthew 6, where Jesus is like, look at the birds of the air, they neither store nor weep nor store up in barns, and they're taken care of. And there's this kind of idea that If you seek what really matters, if you put forth what really matters and you prepare yourself and raise yourself up to that, that's the way to be fully human. But ironically, um, very often today in the name of um, making sure nothing goes wrong, we set ourselves up to be too fragile and too incapable of being able to handle or respond to the things that don't go as we expect or that goes wrong. And by actually kind of flipping it a little bit, and thinking more through the lens of Ivan Illich we might be able to be a lot more human than we otherwise tend to end up.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay so you guys work together at at philosophy portal uh and um you know that that sounds coherent with p- perhaps with Cadell's mission um in some ways and so Cadell are you, do you are you familiar with the work of Ivan Illich at all and uh do you have any thoughts about what what OG OG's, you know, putting putting forth here?
2: Well, like a I guess like a a, a well-prepared bird. I <laughs> I I I've I've read I've read a lot of philosophy. I've I've read a lot of this and that, but I, I've never encountered Illich, but I'm at the same time feeling uh, like I'm I'm ready to encounter uh, whatever is thrown at me, and uh, I can, I can dance around and make some magic happen.
0: Uh huh. Okay. So, what do you think of this idea, like about about, about planning and and uh, and um, just encountering life? Because uh, I guess maybe we, I could just say something about Ivan Illich he's he's a you know uh philosopher who was very big in the 60s and 70s and uh he was kind of like a radical figure in some way because he was critiquing most of the institutions and he got kind of picked up by the radicals of the, of of the day and then kind of got canceled in the in the 80s because of his book book gender and, and disappeared from public discourse because he felt that public discourse was no longer worth engaging with i would say but so he has there's two parts of his his work there's his his public work uh, and then there's his later work which i find deeper and even more interesting than his earlier work even though he's an unknown figure in many ways i think he has a lot of influence a lot of people who, who i've talked to we've we put on a course with um Bonita Roy and and uh and I've talked to Jordan Hall and there's a lot of people mention him here and there and that, that he's had a big effect on them and, and he's definitely had a big effect on me since since reading him. Um and I and I think what we can find in him is a prophet of even though he would object to that term, a prophet of of what is happening in the age of systems, what he called the age of systems. Uh-huh.
2: Well, I can I can I can relate to this. I, let me let me relate to this idea of planning. If that, that does that make the most sense as an intro? Sure, please. <clears throat> All right. So this is the way I, I I would approach the first thoughts that come to my mind when I I hear or I read uh, about the the upcoming course, um, and specifically this notion of unplanning our lives. So. For me, when I was really getting into academics, when I was getting into moving in that direction, it actually came out of uh, a disruption of a plan. So the the mm. plan was to become a world famous athlete. As you can see, I failed. <laughs> 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 it, it It didn't work out so well. Um, at a certain point, basically, you have a plan. I think it's good to have a plan. You know, I, I had a plan, live out live out a plan, and you reach the limit of the plan, and then you find yourself in this disrupted space. Um, and then w- what do you do with that disruptive space? Well, at that time in my life, I came up with another plan. I was going to go into academia, and I came up with another plan. And there's another scaffolding there. Right. And I sort of live out that plan, you know, and, and the plan is something and the plan is something that I think many people, in especially in the 20th century, um, will be familiar with is that you you do you go undergrad, you go to graduate school, you go to do a doctorate or you do undergrad and then you get a career. And then that career is going to take you until retirement. Right. And And that's the plan right and and the problem in the 21st century and maybe why og roses course is, is is uh is so important sign up right now is that um these life plans of i'm going to be x i'm so i'm going to be a professor until i'm 60 and then retire or i'm going to be a doctor until i'm 60 and then retire or I had a I had a girlfriend in my undergrad who wanted me to become a doctor. Her parents said, unless you're a doctor, you can't date my daughter. Right. So there are these ways and there's these ways in which people base their entire family structures on these plans right like you have to become this and then you have this job until you retire and the thing is is that that just that model's just broken completely like that doesn't work at all like there's no there's like and just like and and for me i had an interesting window into this because i was interested in um the technological singularity theory where i saw that as as technology was advancing through society i was like all of the ways in which our society organizes plans for a life they're not going to hold. So, for example, if you look at papers, there are papers that say by tw- by twenty thirty, we're not going to need lawyers. By twenty thirty, we're not going to need doctors. By twenty thirty, we might not need teachers, right? And 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 then all of the things in which people organize and plan their lives just be- and become disrupted. So, in some sense, if you are within one of these plans, uh, then it could very well be that this plan is going to encounter an imminent disruption and you need to unplan, uh in order to, in some sense, uh, come up with a different ethic of life. And maybe what OG Rose is trying to do here could be a helpful window or a gateway
0: into that type of um, experience of life. Yeah, just before OG before speaks, I, I just want to say that what you're describing is really uh it's it's that's how he that's how uh you know Ivan Illich lived his life right through various disruptions of one world into the other and leaving another world behind so that's very interesting and i think he believed you know as a religious person that he was guided by you know what, what you could call the holy spirit so when when system when the system becomes so reified and so mechanical and so dead there, there's a need to 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 move into another another realm and it just means you know leaving everything behind so i think that's what you've been describing a little bit Goodell.
2: well i'll just say that i came up on on the and and pass it pass it to daniel but i came up in terms of the end of my plan uh when um basically the first was at the end of my master's i realized that the the plan I had structured in the academic university system was not was in too much of a conflict with the real of my desire, and mm-hmm. so in and 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 then when I was able to get into a doctoral program which was in touch with the real of the de- de- real of my desire, I came up in terms of the hard limitations of basically, uh, I don't think the university system is is going to hold. Um, the way the way it currently exists, and so and and so that was another break point. And so I think in regards to what you're saying about the way Ivan Illich lived his life, sort of incorporating like that to me is like you know, for example, if we're going to throw in jargon like the 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 idea of self othering, of living as a, as a self othering process. That what what that means basically is to incorporate disruption uh and to make yourself in some sense capable of of uh, making disruption your friend mm-hmm. um and then if you can make disruption your friend and then um uh, you're able to in some sense move with the asymmetry of your identity instead of the constantly needing to uh, fortify the symmetry of your identity um and and maybe I'll I'll end it there mm-hmm
1: both of what you said was perfect and it's very important to note that planning is inevitable like so for example i've got to go on full chairs at the venue i'm planning to go on full chairs at the venue i've got a schedule and so on and so forth the issue is order and where today what we tend to do is plan and not prepare like we think if we're planned we are prepared but they're actually different activities and they're different ways of being ready for the world um, you know, St. Augustine had that idea that evil is a misordered good, you know, everything that exists has substance if rightly ordered. So right like so likewise if we plan to say go unfold the chairs at the venue without sacrificing the exercises or work to be prepared for the unexpected, that would be one thing, but there's something about the systems that Ivan Illich talks about the human brain, in general, that tends to go in the direction of treating the only real things as the things that are planned. And if you do that, that's you being responsible and that's you doing what you need to do. But ironically, that actually makes you unprepared for the unexpected in life. You know, a way to put it to use because Cadell is teaching on Lacan, which is extraordinary. Cadell always loves to do classes on the most difficult books and thinkers. So salute you, sir. Uh, and with like Lacan, what we've done is we've tried to plan to avoid plan plan away from encountering the real. And we've been able to do that for a while. Now we actually need to prepare for the real. Like you have to be prepared for the real, especially given the singularity or AI and all the changes that are occurring. If we're not, the psychosis and neurosis that will occur is going to be extraordinary. And you see that increasingly occurring. Another way to frame this is Nassim Taleb and anti-fragile, because basically to be prepared is to be anti-fragile. And the problem with planning is that it makes you fragile. You cannot predict when the rock is going to hit the window. For example, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be later, but you could looking at the structure of the window, determine if it would handle being hit by a rock or if it would shatter, right? So by examining the structure, and the anti-fragility or robustness, these different terms that Taleb uses, you could make, you would say, oh, well, even though I don't know when something unexpected will occur, say a rock hits the window, I have reason to believe the window will be fine because of its structure. This is what has occurred. We basically focused all our attention on planning to make sure that the rock never hits the window, which is ultimately impossible, not paid attention to the structure of the window, which would be preparing for the day the unexpected occurs. And as a result, when our planning fails and the rock eventually hits the window, it shatters. And that just describes us because we need to be thinking in terms of... and. But this is where Ivan Illich is also very important in his later work, where he talks about shadow work, the right of useful unemployment, because basically what he's pointing out is all of the things that make us prepared and anti-fragile tend to occur in the shadows of the system. It's the work that you're not paid for, it's the work outside of employment, that that is what makes you anti-fragile. And if you exist in a society where doing that works makes you a deviant, quote unquote is the term he uses, or immoral or irrational, then it becomes rational for people to only engage in planning to only participate in the system, to therefore become fragile. And then when the unexpected occurs, the singularity is, uh, as Cadell mentioned, then everyone's going to shatter. And that's basically what's being set up now. And then the irony, too, and then I'll pass it on, is, you know, I've been doing a lot on like economics and theories of equilibrium. And Tyler Cohn talks about the great stagnation. The great irony is this emphasis on planning seems to eventually lead to a great stagnation in first world nations. It stops creating wealth, um, because ironically, it would seem that economies ultimately rely on that shadow work area where creativity and wealth occurrence happens, which is outside the economy. So then the other irony is if everyone's like, well, planning is practical from an economic standpoint, if the emphasis on planning removes wealth creation, it's actually incredibly unpractical and un. Uh, beneficial to the system because it creates a people that actually aren't even able to engage in creativity, wealth creation, social capital, all these things. And yet we're sacrificing this wealth in the name of wealth through planning. So this is the great irony that is occurring and why a focus on preparing uh, becomes, becomes really, really urgent today, both in just being more human, but then on a structural level on a kind of macro system level as well we're not seeing wealth creation and so you're just seeing that the planning the emphasis on planning has a, a limit to what it's capable of producing
0: yeah some for some reason when you were speaking i i i'm picturing what's going on in israel right now mm. in a way and i'm picturing these people living in these beautiful houses and somewhere in israel and then you know, terrorists paragliding through the, you know, into the, into their, into their world, and then them having to be faced with, with death, you know, these images. So it's like, I was thinking about Ivan Illich and how in a way he wants us to prepare for, for, for death, not to plan for death, but, but that is sort of the deepest kind of preparation or deepest kind of spiritual practice that could be done because no matter what we try to plan for there's always that possibility of of the boundaries and borders you know being thrown open and us being encountering that
2: I mean I think that's that's a fan that's a fantastic point uh my my mind and and heart have been mostly uh there actually the last few days mm-hmm. um not in any sort of um not in any sort of um political uh <clears throat> i don't know not 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 in any ideological sense but but mostly in, in the real sense of like just just confronting the real of those of those stories um like so for for example um the the people who planned to go to a festival mm. Uh, the people who plan to go uh, to dance um, and the people who plan to go listen to some techno music and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a war zone um, which nobody could have planned for. I suppose you could argue uh, that you could uh, live your life in such a way as that you could prepare for the the, the imminent catastrophe of, of any given event. Um, But ultimately, I think the best framing and the framing that has stayed with me uh, since I I sort of started my journey outside of the academy um, was Die Again, Die Better. Um, And the reason why Die Again, Die Better became sort of so central to me was because it it seemed to me that that facing death um, and living and preparing my life in some sense in relationship to death, uh is is the deepest work uh, that can be done i think um, illich
0: and- would agree with that and i think that is i i'm sorry if i interrupted there but but it just really resonates with illich's uh idea that the, the, actually the hospitals and sc- you know hospitals are robbing people of their you know ability to die you know in, in a sense uh and then schools are robbing their people of their ability to become sentient thinking people. And this was his point, you know, which seemed rather extreme when he, he came out with it, but it, it, it seems to be coming more and more the case, you know, in the very institutions that people are, you know, people which are, you know, which, pe- which people are, are, are dealing with with these things.
1: yeah well th- i think what has occurred is we have a, an extraordinary bias toward what is quantifiable and if it is not quantifiable then it doesn't exist it's not even real and julia bender when he wrote and i read that with joshua hansen who recently put out a lovely new book on academia joshua hansen and raymond uh do just wonderful owen oh, do wonderful work and what julia was warning back in the 1920s quite a bit ago is he's saying that the university system is giving up or absconding its duty to defend the useless space, the space of leisure. And he's like, if that occurs, then there will only be spaces that are validated by what is quote unquote practical, according to pragmatism uh, as as understood at the time. And that would result in a massive dehumanization. Uh, And it would also make people dependent on the system because it would only, their value would only be um, tied to their ability to effectively participate in that system. So there would be a disabling of humanity and and you know then you had people like Joseph Piper obviously and different people and Ivan Illich is right in is right in there. And so likewise what ends up happening is health becomes like in a way education becomes good at tests, health becomes taking medicine um being practical know is knowing which experts to refer to there's this gradual shift in associations of which increasingly disable the human being from being capable of thinking about health on their own or thinking through their own ideas or all of these different things and so you're increasingly disabled and the insidious part about it is you actually feel like you're not disabled though because I can call the expert, because I can take the medicine. So the the fact you've been disabled is actually hidden um, from you by the presence of the system until it's too late, until the unexpected occurs. Um, Or you can't access it. And it actually then brings, of course, to mind kind of Hegel's master-slave dialectic where the master actually doesn't have it. You think you're the master because you have access to all of these things and the system serves you. But actually, no, the system has all the power (laughs) because you don't have any ability outside the system. And so there's an alienation that occurs. And I absolutely think we really need to examine when people today are talking about the kind of mental health crisis, meaning crisis, all these terms. We really need to examine how much of it is a disablement crisis, a feeling of I don't have skills, I don't have abilities, I can't live the life I want to and I'm kind of disempowered, because I think that's a that's a big feeling that people have. But, you know, as Illich points out, if you take the time to say, learn how to build the example he uses in his book is learning to build a house on your own without reference to a professional, people look at you like you're crazy. Why would you build a house yourself when you can have some people come and do it for you? It's irrational, it's um, impractical. And what Illich says is that basically means any skill, that basically means that any skill production of a human being outside of their job is going to be, de- and there's not gonna be incentive to do it. And in fact, it will seem rational not to do it. Well, that just means everyone's disabled. That just means everyone doesn't have abilities and skills. And that leads to a feeling of disempowerment that I think is widespread today.
0: Yeah, this was his term, the disabling professions, yeah. which appear to give you some sort of power because you have this profession, right, which gives you a social status in the world, uh, which it might make you feel good for a while. But then you realize that you're, 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 not, you're not connecting with so many aspects of life, you know, and then you have this whole burnout society or. Or or whatever, because people are, are just or are just working on one level. They're not you know relating to all the different levels of existence, so to speak. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean I I I I came unplanned
2: to this talk, but I also came to this talk with a a a feeling of um of, of the, the level of impotence we're facing, or the level of impotence that I think exists in, in, the gen, in the general population. I mean, on one level, I think I could frame this level of impotence we're feeling and facing in a positive way, um, and, and also in a symptomatic way of the need for this course, in the sense that, um, it, in my experience, if you need to unplan your life, it means there's something seriously wrong with your plan. Right? Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're operating within a plan which is really not working, that's been my experience anyway. Like, you know, when you reach the the limit of a plan, um and, and that's at the moment where you need to to sort of enter the phase of unplanning. Um, and and it, and, you, and you sort of need to de-mechanize whatever it is that has been installed in you, either through organizational, institutional uh, lens, or through even uh, can be from familial or or or, or your socio relational uh, life that that's not working. That something something's deeply wrong. Um. Uh. In ter- in terms in terms of the the positive dimension to entering into this space of, of of unplanning and impotence and impotence being a positive thing is that you can, in some sense, sort of, it's painful, but you can confront and wash out of yourself the images of omnipotence that might be operating inside of you um, and actually confronting the dimension where you feel most weak uh, and most impotent is actually where you could uh, perhaps find i don't know the word grace comes to mind um the capacity to um the capacity to humble yourself uh to the to the, to to the reality of what's really going on and and whatever fantasies may have been obscuring or masking uh the relationship to the real of of your own body and and your own immediate social relationships um so in that sense you know and and then on but then on 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 but i also don't want to make it too personalized in the sense of like okay it's easy at this point in time to jump on jordan peterson but you know the whole clean on clean your clean your room mentality is also to me very limited in terms of personalizing it too much because there is i think we should have a deep sympathy and 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 respect for anyone who might want to take this course on the level of it is incredibly disorienting to know what to do with your life today. Mm-hmm. Um, like when when you and and I've ha- and maybe I've had the advantage of of thinking about these things since I was in my teenage years because I came on the singularity. But like really, if if you're in a if you're in a situation where you know all of the major professions are not going to be needed, where all of the major career opportunity and you've been trained in a school since kindergarten. To think in this way yeah then what are you supposed to do except cry and break down at the reality of the situation i mean probably the best response is to break down and cry and i mean that's something that i've done several times but the the point the, the point the point is is that you have to in some sense, befriend that level of disorientation that's why I've sort of liked alenka zupanch's idea of object disoriented ontology is that we have to become disoriented uh and, and we have to befriend disorientation uh in order to even start to glimmer at maybe the next steps and I think in terms of the in terms of the next steps, you have to stay very very humble in terms of capacity to predict so let me just give one example and then i'll shut up is if when i was when i was in again when i was in the institutions i could plan out my life many years in advance and i think in the 20th century many people could do that they could plan out their life many you could plan your life and 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 to be honest that makes it in some sense a lot easier to engage in family building activities, because when you have kids and you have family, you want to be able to provide. You don't want to be like, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to get a check next week. I don't know if I'm going to be able to put food on the table next week. You want to be able to have that prediction horizon. But the point is, the point is, I think today is that people don't like for. And so for me, moving out of the institutions every year, I've been building philosophy portal. I don't know what I'm going to be doing the next year. I don't know what I'm going to be doing the next year, because I can't know what I'm going to be doing the next year, because everything changes so quickly. Uh, and 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 the, I think the techno capitalist environment that we're operating in is so pathological. Uh, and there's so much mimetic competition and rivalry. And there's so much informal, ba- there's so many informal boundaries and so much complex social interactions. You can't plan anything. So you, you have to, in some sense, befriend this disorientation and mm-hmm. you've got to constantly go back to it and go back to it. And it's hard to endure that. And so in some sense, I hope what people might get for OG Rose's course is not only the capacity to, to befriend this disorientation, but the capacity to endure through this disorientation, not knowing what's going to come out on the other side.
0: It's interesting. It's a dialectic to the Jordan Peterson thing, which is all about planning, right? Cleaning your room, planning, and and he, and you're saying unplanned. So that's a very interesting counterpoint to that. To that, in a way, not that not that there isn't something true about like cleaning your room in the sense of sort of. It depends what you consider your room. Cleaning your environment so that you can function and become you know more human and not be blown around by the winds of of you know of everything but but on the other hand that that's not that's not a full picture it's not a full picture because i think that what you're describing cadell is closer to life where, where, where there is no planning where you're just confronted with life in every moment i mean uh rather than you're you're stuck in your plan which becomes very mechanical if you're not you know really living a life at the same time
2: I just say very quickly one more thing before Daniels what I'm saying. yes, a hundred percent life. But also, I want to emphasize techno capital because and how strange this environment is that we're we're entering, you know, it's it's not like and this is where the like if it was just life, if it was just life then we could, in some sense, go get back, go. And this is, I think, where the truth of the traditionalist impulse comes from, is the traditionalist impulse is, let's go back to before modern world. Let's go back to before the industrial world. Let's, I'm not saying, yeah, we, we should learn the skills of building your own house and so forth, farming and all of those things. But the thing is, is that we are entering such a strange world, that uh, that the, the, because of technology and because of automation and because of 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 like let's not forget like any other paradigm politically speaking, uh, other than capital, uh, has basically been eliminated. There's a ca- capitalist hegemony on a global level. So, in that sense, you're in some sense thrust into the market forces. So in 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 this is very, very, very strange uh place to be. So life also techno capital, this is the the and it's but it's in some sense we should think ecologically, because techno-capitalism is an ecology of its own. Mm-hmm.
1: That everything has been said is extremely important Um, on the Jordan Peterson example there so there's two ways to look at it there's uh, make your bed every morning which is develop the skill to be someone who's able to organize the space stay disciplined and remember something which is valuable because you're developing a kind of skill. But then there's another side of it that is kind of, oh, I plan to start my day making my bed, and you're not really thinking of it in terms of developing skills that you take beyond the bedroom. That's the that's the question. One person could be uh, making the, cleaning their room, making their bed in just a planned way. Another person could be doing it in a skilled ways, and that's going to come to these kind of self-discernments that we need to look at. A few more things. Um. Uh, everything that was said was exactly right we have to if our plans are deeply wrong and causing trouble we need to unplan ourselves and basically ai and techno capitalism is going to make sure that basically all our plans are such because if you can plan it ai can do it better like almost by definition like mm-hmm. ai is always going to be a better planner than the human being so anything that we can plan to accomplish ai will do it basically and what's going to happen is that AI and technology is going to push human beings more and more to the shadow work realm, the realm that is kind of apathetic that you have to do to know the cipher these things that are not planable, because if they're planable, AI is going to be doing it, and so those kind of skills are going to be a big a big deal. And certainly, I'm not going to uh, not hire someone to help me uh, fix my house or do these different things. But what what Ivan Illich is bringing into our attention is that there's a trade off. It's just like Neil Postman that's saying he's not saying never watch TV. But he wants us to realize that if we, it's always a Faustian bargain. If you choose to watch TV, that's going to maybe remove the imperative to learn how to tell stories or how to engage in conversation. There's always a risk. So it goes whenever you rely on technology or professionalism, that doesn't mean it's inherently bad. It's contingent. It's contingent on your awareness, and that's why you like then stresses awareness and then Simone Veil. and the, like it's based on your awareness of the trade-off. and if that's a trade-off you want to make, and if you make that trade-off, what are you filling the void with? If you don't have the ability to say, build your house, what skills and abilities do you have? Do you have any, or are they all captured by uh, the system? Because if they're captured by the system and your entire empowerment is contingent upon that system, well then if the system kicks you out as techno capitalism likely will, you're in trouble because you won't have anything. And the last thing I'll say to it as well, I really wanna tap on the point that Cadell made about families You know a lot of people like oh people aren't getting married because they don't want to have kids or start families well they they don't know how to plan like you get like like if you go up to the girl and you're like hey i'd like to marry your daughter he's like well what's your 10-year plan you're done like what are you (laughs) going to do like you can't start like we really have to examine the demographic crisis as partly to some degree a result of the bias for planning against preparing the bias against shadow work the need to know what's going to occur Because that's not on the table. And if people aren't, are basically not allowed to start families or, you know, are not going to get permission or they're going to like be nervous or they themselves are a nervous wreck to themselves because they don't know how they're going to take care of a family because they can't have a plan, well, then it's not going to occur. And I think that, you know, the Collins talk about the collapsing birth rates. I know Cadell had that wonderful talk with uh, Malcolm and Simone. That's a big part of this issue. And that, but to, so then to shift that, And then I'll pass it on. Right now, all of the ethics are you're responsible if you have a plan. Under that, in this new paradigm, people aren't going to have families because they're not going to feel responsible. They're not going to feel capable for the future. But if instead being responsible is being prepared, having the ability to meet whatever occurs, having the ability to improvise, having the ability to make things work. Well, then people could maybe feel ready and prepared and start families and things. But you have to have a kind of ethical shift in the zeitgeist in order to, to make that change.
2: Could I could I su- could I suggest and, of course, just dismiss that a suggestion if it's not relevant, but it, it it could be that we need a dialectic of planning and unplanning. Oh, sure. But it sure, se- sure. Like, it, but it, it seems like I, I totally get the unplanning your life thing. I I totally get it. I, I think it's it's needed. But it, what what what's coming out the most, like coming into this conversation, I was un, unplanned. Now in this conversation, what's yes. sticking out to me as very important and very central for people who will be taking this course is is being prepared. That's yeah. I, and and like because that to me is is just you know it it's stri- it's hitting the mark, it's hitting the mark of of I'm anyway I did not not to, yeah. but I just think that also. Uh, maybe
0: it's interesting
2: elaborate uh, just for one moment. I just want to elaborate very quickly on how important it is this um, people not getting married and having kids because you cannot have a 10 year plan. So like, for example, when I had, uh, again, I give that story of my, my second, my second girlfriend, literally uh, literally I needed a life plan right i needed a life plan i needed to ha- be a, a guaranteed to make this much income guaranteed to be this profession and and the whole life had to be totally guaranteed and locked up right with no room for uncertainty or else the relationship could not move forward now in terms of in now in terms of what that is defending against that's defending against the inherent anxiety of of uncertainty the inherent anxiety of how do you how how it's hard enough to live with oneself then to have a, a long term relationship partner many people are extremely struggling with this then in terms of having a long term relationship partner and having kids taking care of impotent bodies cuz what does it mean to have kids it's basically taking care of impotent bodies and 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 and, and having the anxiety of not feeling like an adult yourself uh, having to raise other uh, impotent bodies to be adults is is most. if people don't have the knowledge of how they're going to put food on the table or pay rent they're not going to be able to enter into those types of arrangements there's going to be too much anxiety and so basically the social fabric of our society is being ripped apart by the anxiety of uncertainty and the fact that planning is just not possible
1: anymore
0: exactly yeah well it's interesting as you were speaking i was thinking of a conversation we had in berlin where um you know where you were talking about your future and, and i was saying "Oh, i just i just got married and, and had kids i didn't really think about it um but but in a way it's something that what daniel is saying i think i felt prepared even though i wasn't i had no plan like I had zero plan, but in some way I was prepared because I'd had bad relationships and I knew what they were, and, and 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 I knew what a good relationship was, and I had trust in this person. So I didn't I didn't have a plan, and I didn't have much of an income, and I didn't have any clear future whatsoever. But this is a very good uh, this is a very good uh, thing that that Daniel is saying. Being prepared is is very it's very different, right? Then, then sort of having the having a, a clear map. I mean, a, a good. I think it's good maybe to have a map, but you have to know that you're going to have to change, you know, on a dime. You know, every, you know, in, in a million ways, and it's not going to your image of whatever you think you can be and, and who you're going to be is never going to be conformed, never conformed with your plan ever, right? So, uh, so that's very interesting.
2: Well. I think, I again, I, to me, it's, it's, it's dialectical in some sense, because I, I think, like, for example, when I had the image of myself of doing a doctorate at 19, I did have the image of doing a doctorate on the singularity, and I had the image of collaborating with certain people, and that did come to be. So in, in some sense, having a goal and aiming for it can be good. But at the same time, I think what you're emphasizing, Sweeney, is so important is that whatever map you have has to be something that changes um, and has to be something that responds to the real of the situation. It's never going to be mapping the entire field of your experience. So there's some sort of dialectic here at at work. And and I think we should use the example of marriage and children and building a house um, as a, a case example. Where we can actually work out the nuts and bolts of what we mean uh, when we say plan, unplan, be prepared, all of these things.
1: No, everything was perfect. And Sweeney, that's a perfect example because I think that that gets at gets at it. And what Cadell said gets at it as well. The issue is that, you know, this is the part where Michelle has this wonderful uh, metaphor of the bird. And if you see this, there's a difference between having a bird that you hold by the feet and you've captured it. Then you versus holding the bird in the palm of your hand. It can fly off, but you trust that it's gonna come back because you've prepared and you've trained the bird. And so likewise, if we hold plans like this, that's one thing. But there's something about human beings that can't help but grip plans and make the map equal the territory. And that's when all the the problems begin. There so from a place of preparation plans can come out like i'm pl- like i said i'm pr- i'm planning to go fix these chairs or different things the issue is when we put plans first it doesn't tend to be the case that being prepared comes out of that because there's something about prioritizing plans as primary that makes us fragile and not doing the work of prepared because it feels like we are prepared whereas when you're prepared and you let the the plans come out and the other key is you when you're focus primarily on being prepared. Your plans tend to have a a smaller window, like you're prepared for you're planning for next week or two weeks, as opposed to 10 years from now. Because it's just like in a weather forecast, the likelihood of the forecast being accurate if it's a month out is quite low. But if it's for tomorrow, it's probably pretty high, right? So the effectiveness of planning tends to collapse the more outward it is. And the more long term it is, the more the only way really to be Dare I say practical, like actually practical, is to be prepared because you can't predict that far out. So the problem is, what we've done is gotten the order backwards. We're emphasizing plans and as a result, not being prepared. It's like, you know, the thing with C.S. Lewis I love so much. If you put first things first, you get second things also. But if you put second things first, you lose both. Planning is a second thing. We've made it a first thing. So our plans don't even work and we're not prepared. But if we made being prepared primary, well, then we would have plans that would actually be effective because for wherever the map isn't the territory, we're prepared for that break. That's the thing. Like if you're prepared, then wherever the plan fails, you're ready for that. You know, you knew it was just a map. You knew it wasn't the territory. You knew it was just a model. And now you're able to fill it out. But if you're not prepared, here's what happens. If you're not prepared and you've had this plan, Because plans tend to have a kind of Stockholm syndrome thing. You tend to fall in love with them. They tend to like, like you get attached to them. When they fail, you are straight devastated and you have no idea what to do and everything collapses. And so then, and then, and then here's the thing. Okay. So your plan failed, but all you know how to do is make plans. And so you go back to your room, you're devastated. Well, how do you leave your room if you're devastated and you haven't made your bed? Well, all you know how to do is make another plan, but why would you do that if the first one failed? And eventually you just stop trying because you don't know of any other alternatives. And that's where you end up in this disabled ethos that uh, that, that illick is pointing at. Like when plans fail, as they will, if all anyone knows how to do is make another plan, they'll eventually stop and then they won't get married. Then they won't have kids. Then they won't move into the future.
2: I think, I think I just want to situate this in regards to not the end of the scientific universe, but the end of the scientific universe that doesn't include subjectivity. So when the scientific universe was born, it was born under a paradigm of determinism and prediction. Actually, if you go back to the original origin of modern science, what actually gave science its social um, its social prestige and it's social like value in some sense, was even the capacity to predict when a comet was going to fly across the sky at a certain moment. Like this wowed people. The fact that science could predict exactly when a comet was going to, to, to cross the sky at, oh, and it, it, and the predictions were much uh, more effective than the people reading tea leaves and stuff like this. They're like, oh, there's something there's something interesting here because science can make predictions. And I think this is the most interesting thing about science is that, for example, the lower you go in terms of physics, the, more, the easier it is to predict things. So like, for example, when it comes to cosmology, when it comes to astronomy, we can predict the movement of planets billions of years into the future. But the closer you get to the real of human subjectivity, the more our prediction horizon breaks down completely. And this, and and then the paradox of science is, is that all of this, all of the prediction capacities of science allow us to do what? Allows us to make technology. But then when you factor in the use of technology on the level of the real of human history, what does that do to human society? It makes it more unpredictable meaning we don't like the, the in some sense it's the automatization it's the 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 talk technologization of our society which is making it impossible for us to predict the future of our own identities so this is to me why we have to have a science which includes subjectivity which is a science which is in some sense much, which is in some sense much more internal and friendly to the quantum mechanical paradigm because you come down to uncertainty, you come down into indeterminacy of identity. um but also the need for psychoanalysis because you basically have to what like already said, what happens when you confront uncertainty and indeterminacy? You confront anxiety, basically. And it's that anxiety which is going to cause all of the psychological neuroses that people are facing, and it's going to
0: prevent us from being able to live, basically. But maybe not only anxiety. You you meet like if I if I was thinking of of translating what you you said in Ivan Illich's theology, you, you know you meet the Samaritan right in the ditch, who is who is who is you know dying or something or is, is you know and 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 you are from a tribe of certainty. This is how you should behave, and you break out of that. Uh, let's say a model of certainty. To do this one thing which breaks out of it and you meet the the, the the samaritan you know and that's which is which is 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 like a pure subjective act in a way a pure it has nothing to do with any of the laws or rules of of your society you've broken that and for him that's the profound uh the profound move let, let's let's say uh so so i think that's very interesting i mean i in terms of i guess science tries to make trying science makes models of, of reality and we become dependent on these models and then when the models break down we're faced with as you say our own subjectivity or we're faced with the other and and uh and so we have this very you have this very pure decision to make or something like that right this is ivan illich and it's and it's and when we institutionalize that and when we make it an institution, then we, we were moving ourselves even further from from that pure moment. Is that making any sense? Uh, are you following?
2: It made
1: sense to me, but I let Daniel, you want to say yeah. no, I it makes a ton of sense, I think. Um, so a few things. I think the feeling of disgust can be a way to hide from anxiety, because if you come up on the person on the road and you're disgusted by them, well, then you don't, but if you were to come up on them and say, wait a minute, what if this person is as human as I am? Oh, well, maybe I need to take care of them. And now like the anxiety comes with the abyssal and we create all of these reactions to hide from the abyssal Uh, because also there's the anxiety of, of, if I take care of this guy on the side of the road, what will my community think of me? because i like i would associate with these people that's why like jesus is such a scandal when he's sitting with tax collectors and different things but there certainly is many many emotional responses to accounting the abyssal if you will the space of outside of the plan outside of the system there is turn to a strongman like belonging again talks about there's the become a kind of utopianist where you're not really thinking about um you know you've had this vision of how the world will work and you force it that way there are all these different responses and all of them i think is speaking to an encounter of lacan's the real which has this kind of anxiety to it like one of the things too um like there's so much talk about like the world is ending and i wanted to speak on this because I think Cadell is exactly right to say that when you're in this place of impotence where you feel like powerless, it is an opportunity in the Hegelian sense, right? Like whenever you're encountering a limit, you know, for Alex Ebert, that can be a saturation point that has a threshold, right? So, but it's all up to us. It's like we've said, like for Hegel, the future is better but there's no guarantee there's a future. <laughs> so it's contingent, right? It depends on how we respond to this impotence if it, and if we might negate it, sublate it into something that actually makes us more human. And actually the impotence is a result of the saturation of the planning paradigm. It's not that the past was wrong to use planning because you had a period of technology where that kind of worked, right? Like the last 70 years, it's not that that was like immoral to live according to plans, it it worked, right? The issue is that you have historical epochs and shifts just like Hegel understood. And what you're reaching now is the saturation point of of the planning model and you have to then negate sublate it into the prepared model. Notice I didn't say erase it, because there's going to be plans and preparing. It's all about the order. It's where we make primary the prepared, and the plans come out of that, as opposed to we've had a historical period where we've basically been able to conflate planning and prepared, as if they are the same thing. You know, we've been able to get away with that, because the technological paradigm has allowed that, and that's coming to an end. And so now we have to reverse it and I actually, and then I'll, I'll pass it on. There's a few, because the things also on the comments was really important. I, I think you can actually make the argument that, um, and hopefully Belonging Again 2 does this, where if you go into economics, you actually see at the core of it is something unplanned. If you go into the core of society, like Belonging Again 1, you see at the core of society, something that's unplanned. That is uh, the, conflict of, the conflict of society, the value circle. You see in economics, you don't have an equilibrium model. Here's the funny thing, in a very real way, To move to a paradigm that's really focused on the um, prepared versus the planning is actually bringing out the core of all of these different fields that we've actually kind of lost sight of. Now, that's an elaborate argument I'd have to get at. But another thing I want to just kind of bring out is how there's actually a realization um, of what's behind so many of our systems. And that's something that's non-systematic that makes it possible. That's an entirely different subject. I just want to note that
0: all this seems very profoundly christian to me it's like it's like the the impetus of the god man on the cross is our impotence or or our inability to you know to plan right it's like it's like and 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 what what talking about that is the meditation okay we can't you know we 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 can't really go further than that somehow um
1: well, well I, it, I would just comment that's a good example because you can't plan for God to show up as a man like that right like you know you can be prepared for it maybe but even that's a very high bar I think it's a good example Cadell, please well
2: just so again in in the sense of um cannot go like Sweeney was saying you know cannot cannot go further than that it's like you know the 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 visions that the visions that first came out of scientific determinism were visions of a complete plan. Hmm. basically it, it, like it, the complete the complete plan was that we were going to have a complete picture of the deterministic universe and so in some sense you'd be able to predict everything that could happen into the future and in some sense that brings us i think to the the radical core of like what what hegel's saying when he says and in, instituting the owl of minerva because he's basically saying look you can't jump ahead of yourself when you include subjectivity you can't go into the future you mm-hmm. can't predict the future you can't go any further than this what we can do is confront the real of our situation here that's basically what we can do and what the philo- the only thing that the philosopher is is the philosopher is actually thinking the real of the moment without 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 and and not functioning as a strong man uh not focusing as a utopian not focus the, the philosopher doesn't have, the philosopher ideally shouldn't be functioning as just some blind authority figure. The philosopher shouldn't be functioning as some, here's the utopian vision of where we're all going to be going in the promised land. Uh, the philosopher is just maybe capable of pointing out some some antagonisms and tensions in the present moment that maybe we should think more about. Um, and in some sense, that that in some sense might be more closer to the model of um, preparedness. I mean, a, a philosopher is ideally someone who's who's prepared to think the real. Uh, that's 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 all. And I think that's why maybe the real uh, blessing or gift that 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 philosophy can give is after you've studied it, you just come to, for example let's think about about like what we can learn from from the horrors of what's going on in israel right now and let's let's think about that i mean and and let's 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 think about that in in the in our deepest humanity together or something like that uh, and keep bringing it back to these real
0: topics yeah i would say that in a way uh, you know in Gert, gertchef's model is you always come back to looking at the, the self contraction looking at the mechanicalness. You keep returning to that and, and seeing that in yourself and, and, and divesting yourself of, of all, all you know, illusion. And then actually something incredibly wonderful arises from that, But but you don't want to, but imagining the wonderful thing before you go through that process is, is probably counterproductive and probably leads to a dangerous idealism
1: I, I completely agree. I think it is um, profoundly uh, the case that Hegel is preparing. He's talking about preparing. And you can't plan for the future, only prepare for it. And the way you do that is by getting better at confronting the real today. One of the problems with, if you say, the point of the world, you know, the point of philosophy is not to interpret the world to change it. The problem is, since you can't interpret the future, you're all, all change is regressive. You can only change the world in light of a past model, so it has to be shrinking it. That's the problem. But if you, like Zizek says, if you focus on interpreting the world, well then you're actually prepared for what the world becomes so that you can meet it in a manner to participate in its negation sublation as opposed to lead to its regression that's the great it's the first things first principle as well if you put first, if you put interpretation first you get change as well but if you put change first you lose both it's the great irony and i think also too nietzsche you know i'll talk about beastocentricism like basically what we've done is we've had our plans bestow upon us our direction and so we've been relying on something external from us, a model of the world to bestow upon us what we should do. And for Nietzsche, no, you have to stop that. You have to deconstruct those bestocentricisms as I try to outline in book five of the gay science.
2: I can jump in here with, I just finished reading um, Mark Gerard Murphy's uh, The Spiritual Direction book on Lacan and John of the Cross. And so uh, coming to the end of that book, he has a really fantastic conclusion. So I want to put that in conversation with plans bestowing direction. For for Gerard Murphy, what he's saying is, is that disruption bestows direction and grace in that disruption. So grace in disruption bestows direction over plans. In some sense, it's the capacity. In what I take from from his idea is that plans must, in some sense, include within themselves the 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 the, the disruption, and then the subjectivity has to, in some sense, be able to endure or 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 uh, hold a, a graceful position within that uh, within that condition
0: yeah i was talking to to um tom this morning you know about the israel thing and you were mentioning Kadell this you know uh sometimes you need to weep or sob and uh i saw a little video and it was you know family and there was a boy and a girl and they were both crying the parents were there and then and then the mother says um or the the kid says, I want my sister back, and the sister's just been shot by the, the terrorists. And, and and is she coming back? And then and then the the mother says in a very cold voice, because she's trying to keep everything together, no. <laughs> I just started to sob like for about an hour. And and I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, what do I do with that? Like what is the graceful thing to do with that? Do I get into some kind of, you know? righteous state of mind that we should, you know, go and kill all the terrorists or, or or no, you, you just have to sit with that and be with that. And, and that that's there's something uh, there's a grace in that in, in a way, because something is something even though like it it's it almost sounds pretentious, because you have no idea what that that kind of horror is really like in your nice little house and, you know, Southern, but, but the, the, the grace you're talking about somehow comes in those moments, doesn't it? Um.
2: Yes. So this is a really good example, Andrew. It just gave me so many ideas. Like this is why it's so important to bring these examples from the real is because it's in examples like that, which that example just captured so perfectly is that you come to face what the original science couldn't face, which is the irreversibility of process it's irreversible she's Mm -hmm. not she's not coming back yeah original science was always reversibility
0: and there's some part of your mind that wants to fix that and then you can't and you're stuck there you're confronted with impotence. yeah You're confronted
2: with impotence you're confronted with castration you can't bring her back right and all magical thinking and all woo-woo thinking is basically the the capacity to play with reversibility to to undo the horrors of what we've had to endure and which we cannot just simply endure because it means confronting the void and putting an image over that unthinkable thing that unthinkable that ungrievable thing which is which has just happened and now somehow you have to continue living uh, after after knowing that that's possible or after knowing that that's something you, you've, you've had to go through. And I just wanna give a very quick example of how this has almost nothing, maybe a little bit, but I don't think very much to do with uh, intelligence because in just terms of pure intelligence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, le- I listened to a story last week about a man who has purportedly had the highest IQ recorded in the 20th century. He had an IQ of something like 250, he was a prodigal child, uh, he was put on a pedestal from a very young age, people thought he's going to be the next Einstein, there were newspaper reports written that he's going to be Einstein, and all of this all of this stuff. He died in his early 40s working in a, a patent clerk office, funny enough, some sort of mail office, uh, with no prestige, whatever, failed at school completely and whatever but the interesting thing is he he published one uh, he published one um paper which nobody nobody read and it was a theory of time it was a theory of time which claimed that we could do reversibility and i read the paper <laughs> i read the paper i'm going to go read this thing. no one no, no one apparently gave it any 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 <laughs> time it's a hilar- it's it's a hilariously in some sense autistic paper but the, but the point, the point is, is in the context of what you just said, Sweeney, it proves the point that no matter how intelligent you are, coming to terms with the irreversibility of the universe is too painful. Yeah. It's too, like, it, so it doesn't matter that he had a 250 IQ. All he did with his 250 IQ was write a theory about the illusion of reversibility of time.
0: Yeah, well, there's these stupid people at Harvard who are sort of defending Hamas, defending the terrorists or whatever. They've, they've, they've created some intellectual reason for that. And they're complete morons, no matter how high of an IQ they, they have. I mean, I don't mean to be political about it at all. It's just, it's just moronic, right? There's no humanity there. So it tells me that our education back to Illich system is not teaching people to be Wise or human or, or you know have any depth for me it's like that's a religious business in some ways maybe it's a philosophical business too but
1: well you know for me it's very interesting because I always like to talk about the distinction between correspondence and coherence And intelligence is in the business of coherence, but it may not correspond with anything like there's a there's a good argument to be made that many conspiracies are remarkably intelligent. The problem is they just don't correspond with reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that in a society that really emphasizes planning you're emphasizing coherence as if that equals correspondence. You don't have to actually be prepared for the places where your plans fail. And this is what intelligence wants actually. Like intelligence wants to believe that if your model is coherent or if all your arguments add up or you have a model and it all fits, that the map is the territory. Because if the map is the territory, then intelligence is God basically. But if the map isn't the territory, that's really what? Humbling. But in that humility, intelligence can be put in its right space to be enfleshed, as that Illich will say, to be embodied, to be coming to terms with subjectivity and the subject in different things. But this is why, for me, an emphasis on critiquing planning, even though, of course, there are good forms of planning when it is ordered rightly with preparing is so necessary today because we have a a planned drunk world. And there's a very real sense, I love these points on the um, irreversibility, like, What we're doing in many respects when we create a plan is making sure we never encounter anything that we want to reverse. Like if everything goes well, we'll never have to want anything reversed and absolutely intelligence. It's funny to think that at a hyper intelligence, the number one goal is how can we reverse time? And it goes to show you the actual like desire of intelligence is control over time. And maybe then if time is more primary than space that a desire over time is the desire to be god right like because if time is the most fundamental reality if we have control over time we're god
2: so i just want to say this because this is my major philosophical takeaway in so far teaching lacan is he puts in uh he says that the in some sense the sublation of freud is plato and kierkegaard where plato is where plato is memory and Kierkegaard is repetition. And I was just thinking about the ultimate intelligence has the plan to 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 that to never encounter anything that we'd want to reverse. This to me might be Plato's ideas. This might be Plato's ideas and memory. Because Plato puts the ideas on the level of we, we remember the one. And even my grandmother, I always tell the story. When I was six or seven years old. My grandmother is a super Platonist, and she basically said, Oh, you don't remember when we were in heaven before you don't remember, uh, you know, the before you were born. And, and she always, anyways, she's classic Platonist in this sense. But what Lacan's saying is, Yes, we have this memory, but he also says scientific man is doomed to repetition. Mm. And this repetition, the- and this is why Kierkegaard is such a strange theological figure. Because repetition is, in some sense, you're doomed to this absurd, paradoxical situation that Kierkegaard always brings out, right? Like the famous examples being, like, for example, you get married or you don't get married, whatever. You, you know, mm-hmm. all these, all these funny, funny little paradoxes that we that basically the intellect always wants to reverse to a time where it doesn't have to deal with that non doesn't have to deal with that anxiety, basically.
0: It wants to make everything clean and safe and sterile and and have a perfect image you know and there there's there i think there is something that that there's probably an intelligence to that but if as long as you can dissolve because you have to create images to move forward somehow but you have to also dissolve the images uh as well you know in the tantric tradition we work with images all the time but we always dissolve them after we work with them so that they don't become fixed uh, pictures of reality uh so so i think that uh yeah it might be interesting like the platonic and and, and then the like the more the absurd and the platonic have a have a, a dialectic together i think that's what you're saying right yeah absolutely
1: well it's it's interesting because there's a way in which you know in uh the only being that's safe is god right And so if we're overly bent on being safe, it's kind of like idolatry, because we're going to make ourselves like God, where we're ultimately safe. And this is where my, you know, to speak of Christianity for Illich, you know, God, not even God's safe. You know, if you take, like, a Peter Rollins thing, so who do you think you are, you know, making plans to make sure that nothing bad happens to you? And, like, there's an interesting, like, idolatry, if you're not careful, where safety make, freezes the world into something predictable. And you see the great irony, too, on the, on the points that Cadell has made about the comment, like— The more complex, and the word complex means a million things to a million people, but if you granted me here, the more complex we're talking, the less predictable it is, but the irony is that we associate the most real with the most predictable, so the most real things are the least complex. So then humans are like one dimensional to use Marcuse's phrase, we're, we're disabled. Because if all of the social incentives are in favor of planning and predictability, that means you have to make the human less complex in this sense to be more like the comet, right? And then we wonder why everyone is like fricking objectified. We objectify ourselves in these social incentives. And so it's so important to not have this association of the real the real future is the one you can plan because if you can plan, it's less complex and therefore less alive. It's more like just basic physics or formulas or different things. And so that social bias is incredibly complex, consequential.
2: Yeah, I could jump in here as well. And just, I like my favorite, my personal, my super bias, my favorite theological move is one that always inscribes our own concerns into God himself So, for example, we're not safe, but God is safe is like, no, even God is not safe. This is to me when theology becomes fun, because because, and like to me, this is like a very practical observation. Let me play with this for a second that it's not only that we are unsafe, but God is also unsafe, Mm -hmm. is that Lacan says as long as we're speaking. God will, God will exist in some sense. Like he's basically saying God, he's like equating God to like the symbolic order and speech and, and, and the structure of language. And like, he always relates to, for example, we're born into language, language precedes us. Um, and so in some sense, language is like the structure of God or something. But let me just give this example of even God is not safe in this context is because what happens with uh, the technological singularity is in some sense it threatens language itself. So if 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 God is some sense equivalent to like the symbolic order, even God is unsafe in the technological singularity. So so we, we, we have to think in this uh in this level, I think.
0: I remember talking to a Jewish theologian who would say that God is schizophrenic and that it's our job to heal this schizophrenia of God. I thought that was an interesting uh another interesting theological kind of game Uh, one thing I was thinking also I wanted to what what you were talking about earlier is the fact that this this intense planning right of the technological world that is is encroaching on everybody all the time uh uh I was talking to Owen earlier and Owen's writing poetry I say okay yeah that's the thing to do You're, you're supposed to do the thing that the machine can't do uh you know always right so you should be right re- you should write poetry or you, you know that's like that's the right move to make um uh, the, to do the thing that the machine cannot do um and that's kind of that is being prepared is, is it are you prepared to do what the machine can't do
2: i do agree with this and i like the direction you're pointing i just want to say that I've come across an AI software program that's able you can send it, you can send it uh like okay. for example, I'm I'm again giving my bias. But I sent this AI program uh, like Eminem's early albums, and it can play around with them, and it can recreate like the same sounds, and it can recreate the same. So, in some sense, even this is under under threat. It's it's basically this is very very te- this is very terrifying. But I I agree that th- this is this is the question this is the terrifying question that we need to be prepared for. What we need to be prepared for is precisely what the machine can't do. Um, and and I'm even like I'm I'm like paying it, I'm paying attention to this in in my own work right because in making courses or whatever uh, writing uh, scientific papers or philosophical papers, increasingly I see all of these uh, advertisements on Twitter or advertisements online that say, oh, in just five minutes, uh, this AI program can make an entire course for you Yeah. yeah in just yeah, yeah, five minutes, in, in just five minutes, uh, it can create a presentation for you. So you don't ever need to make a presentation or you don't ever need to create a course because this AI program can already do it. So it's very, uh,
0: disturbing time that we're heading into. Yeah. Um... So maybe I think we need to wrap up now because I, I would love to keep talking for an hour, this has been a wonderful conversation but, but uh, I have a, another appointment at seven. Um, uh, oh gee give us give us a final you know plug uh, for for why we should should unplan our lives.
1: Well, this has been amazing. Um, Well, um, we need to unplan our lives. I'll just use what Cadell said at the end. Um, There is going to be something the AI can't do. And we will be so trained by the AI to have it do everything that the thing the AI can't do is what's going to destroy us. Because we can't plan for what the AI can't do, only be prepared for it. And that's where we need to be doing preparing now, so when that thing hits us, we're able to respond to it like a hip-hop artist. And I think Like life is fuller if you do that and you really can walk into a room and feel like you can talk to people, that you actually do have something to say to them. And I think the number one thing. So all of this opens up to me the biggest distinction that is the difficulty of the prepared life, the unplanned life is being able to tell the difference between fear and wisdom. And I would argue that the whole reason we've actually kind of have this bias toward planning is to conceal ourselves from the difficulty of that discernment. How do you tell when you are engaged in fear to say not do something versus wise to do something? How do you tell when you're being foolish to do something as opposed to facing your fears to do something. This is where all of the different um, things that come in, in the clouds, like these very phenomenological tests like the unarmored test, self-forgetfulness, all of these have to come out because that's going to be the fine distinctions we have to engage in auto mastery, get to the place of auto mastery in so that we can thrive when we have a life that is focused on the prepared as opposed to being disabled by the plan. And that will also be the training that we can put ourselves through to make us ready for this uh, thing that the AI will not be able to do. And that also would actually make us capable. I think Alex would put it very well where with AI, we're going to have to be escape artists thinking of entirely new forms of art, because you know, whatever form we create is going to be really good at poetry, suddenly really good at music. Well, what if there are new forms, like, like entire forms of art or living that we haven't thought of that actually AI could help us think of as a tool for that new formulation creation if we're prepared to face the anxiety that the technology will put forth so that we may use it in that positive way. And so, again, I want to be able to walk into a room and be prepared for whatever the people there may bring or say, and to bring life to that situation, because I know I can't plan for the encounter of the other, but I can be prepared for it. So on November 4th, we will go into detail on how to be prepared, and it will be a lot of fun, and we're thrilled to be be starting soon.
0: Awesome, guys. Thanks so much. This was great, and let's do it again sometime.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Cadell, Andrew, this has been great. See you guys.